You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Rob Reich, who is a professor of political science and also philosophy at Stanford University. He's also the director of the Center for Ethics and Society and is also involved in the human-centered AI organization down there, as well as the Center for Philanthropy and Society. Uh, A lot of hats that you wear, Rob, and also the author and editor of a lot of books. Most recently, this one, co-author, System Error where big tech went wrong and how we can reboot. And also the author of Just Giving, Why Philanthropy is Failing and How It Can Do Better. Welcome, Rob. Really great to be here. Thanks for having me, Greg. This book right here, System Error, it's based on a course that you have been offering at Stanford University that brings together computer science, social science, ethics. And I was wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about First of all, how did this course develop and what's the purpose of the course? But also, it seems like this shouldn't be a unique thing, right? This should be something that we should see in all universities. As you mentioned, finance was to the 20th century, kind of computer science is to the 21st century. And we grappled with a lot of issues around ethics in the 20th century. I spent most of my time teaching finance. Now I spend most of my time teaching courses on technology. And I used to have a course specifically on ethics and finance. And I think that's maybe not every school has it, but at least everybody's thinking about it. And we've all had to grapple with those issues. Whereas computer scientists, their idea of thinking about ethics is sort of a relatively new phenomenon for computer scientists. They're kind of like, hey, we just building hammers and saws and drills and what people do with it. That's not what we're all about. How did this course come about? And do you think this is really the beginning of a trend across schools around the country? I hope that it is. And you've nailed it exactly, Greg, in the sense that computer science is, I think, the the most important field of study and the profession of programmer or coder, the most important kind of job occupation to have in the 21st century. And yet computer science is, developmentally speaking, still a very young field and discipline. I mean, it was really only created in the 1950s and 60s. And for many decades thereafter, it was still a kind of hacker's orientation in the sense that, sure, it was possible to think about developing hardware and software systems, but by acquiring a computer science education, you didn't acquire a whole lot of social power. Whereas that easy pathway that's now available to an 18 or 19 year old at a campus like Berkeley or Stanford or MIT or anywhere across the country, hop on the computer science major bandwagon. It's a conveyor belt that basically deposits you at the footsteps of a startup or a big tech company. That's the path of least resistance. And what used to be a hacker's orientation is now a 21-year-old, a 23-year-old can have an extraordinary amount of power. And just apropos that comparison to financing, like I often will start teaching a class at Stanford by saying to students, when I graduated from college 30 years ago, I never met a single first-year student, a freshman who said, you know, like, I can't wait to join McKinsey and change the world. And yet 50% of the graduating class applied for a job at McKinsey or at Wall Street. And it's obvious why, in retrospect, there's social status and money attached to it. Whereas, you know, what the computer scientist major has to say for him or herself today is that you actually can change the world as a 21-year-old or 23-year-old. In fact, the cold premise of Silicon Valley at the moment is to go sort of decamp onto the campus itself and find the 19-year-olds with the really interesting ideas, flood them with startup capital and give them a chance to change the world through software. Where else is it possible as a 21-year-old, 23-year-old to like spend the weekend coding and then roll out a product or a product update to thousands or millions of people? Okay, so all that's just to say, extraordinary amount of social power now attached to engineers. And There's been a kind of utopian or at the very least optimistic frame for so many decades in Silicon Valley about this. And then in the past five years, a much more dystopian or pessimistic frame. So about five years ago on campus here at Stanford, I was witnessing the mass migration of undergraduates from the social sciences and the humanities over to major in computer science by a significant margin, the largest major at Stanford. And I wanted to try to find a way to build a curricular path that built in ethical considerations and policy considerations to the design 
and deployment of these fantastically powerful technical skills. And so rather than doing what I often cartoonishly imagine is the philosopher teaches a boutique seminar on ethics and technology and front loads it with three weeks of John Stuart Mill and three weeks of Immanuel Kant. And then you get the Wired Magazine article on the trolley problem in autonomous vehicles. So that's the technical input into the class. This combination of working with the most popular professor at Stanford, the Mehran Sahami, my co-author who teaches the Introduction to Computer Science class, and my social science colleague, Jeremy Weinstein, who served at the highest levels of the Obama administration, were trying to signal to people that this is not just like one part of the campus finger wagging at the technical people over in the engineering school. These are a set of skills to integrate into a classroom environment, and that is essential for thinking about the power of computer scientists or programmers in the world as we now live, where the big tech companies have become the biggest companies in the world with billions of people on a single platform, et cetera, et cetera. So we started this class five years ago, spent a year developing a common framework together. After having considerable success, like it began with 300 students, the next year we taught a version of the class to people in, in tech companies in Silicon Valley, got relatively good feedback, continued to improve and re revise the class. When the pandemic hit, we decided we'd try to write a book and system error is, is the result. And I don't think it's just computer science, right? All engineering has been value neutral, let's say, for its entire existence. We think about medicine and we think about law as professions and as a profession, there's a duty, right, to society or a duty to the patient, which is independent of money-making, at least in theory, right? And those professions have, have always grappled with, or maybe more so in the breach than in the honoring of the ethical obligations, but at least they've known that you can't be a lawyer or a doctor without impacting people in, in a serious way and, and impacting the world and society. So why is it that engineering has never had any kind of ethics in its curriculum. Now, look, I, I understand why there hasn't been a licensing regime the way we have with law and medicine. Do you need to have a, a licensing regime in order to have ethics in the curriculum? Yeah, it is tempting to go down that route. And you're exactly right to point to the fact that with rare exception, there is no licensing for engineers, even civil engineers rather than computer engineers. But as my colleague Maron likes to say, if we had a licensing regime, we wouldn't have a Bill Gates or a Mark Zuckerberg than the classic dropouts who create these extraordinarily large companies on the basis of their technical skill and vision. So my own impulse is not that we should port over from familiar other professions like law or medicine, the same institutional footprint of professional norms and ethics that exist there into computer science. We need a purpose-built arrangement there. And I'm not sure licensing is exactly the right approach. Various different forms of liability, I think, would be important to attach to companies, if not to particular individuals. And there just needs to be a deeper institutional footprint for exposure to ethics and policy questions. The short thought here on my part is that whether or not a, a programmer is aware of it or not, you're encoding values into the technical artifacts you're making. And having a full awareness of what you're doing there within a company or from outside a company looking in is just essential to a mature practice of the profession. And I don't want anyone to have the image that when the ethicist shows up, the only thing the ethicist ever says is slow down, maybe don't do that ever. It's all a kind of drag and on the progress of science or technology. By contrast, I view ethics as the inescapable confrontation of moral complexity in our lives as individuals, our lives as citizens, and our lives as professionals. When, for example, you're building some product or platform, you're making value choices about what you're doing and better to be aware of them than to sleepwalk. And there's nothing in favor of moral sleepwalking so far as I can make out. And this transforms ethics, in my experience, into a kind of engaging and exciting practice rather than something that's seen as a kind of drag on the profession. And that's where I would, at the moment, put my money, as it were, on how to develop a more robust set of norms within computer science is to build into the practice of technical fields, you know, what you could call values-based design, if you like, but there's a variety of other ways to think about it too, but that's the basic spirit. Don't do computer science as a value-neutral enterprise. It never was that to begin with. Yeah, I think that's an important point, right? That 
there's this implied normativity or there's this implied value. So even people who, who claim that they don't have them are actually acting as if they have them and you can kind of reverse engineer them. And the engineers in Silicon Valley, their normative principles seem to be what you call technological optimization. So what do we mean by that? Because I think most people would say, hold on, optimization itself can't possibly be a value, right? It has to be, well, what is it exactly that you're optimizing? So what is it the kind of Silicon Valley engineers are optimizing intentionally or unintentionally? What, what exactly does it mean to have this optimizer mindset? And it seems to me that there's a lot of similarities between that mindset that engineers have and the mindset of a lot of economists. I think a lot of economists and engineers both could be described at least politically as libertarian leaning, I suppose. That's sort of a direct out kind of result of this optimizer mindset. So tell us a bit about what do you mean by this optimization mindset? Yeah, good. This is, in certain respects, I think the philosophical heart or the, the most interesting terrain of both the class that we teach and the book. And if you'll permit me just to give a, a background sense about why I think it's so important to focus exactly where you put the question, there's a sense that many people have that when, again, when the ethicist shows up, what they have in mind is something like personal ethics. Oh, you need a, a moral compass to guide your way through life. And what we're trying to avoid in the world is Elizabeth Holmes as a way of thinking about lying, cheating, deceiving your investors, your employees, the public. Whereas I think while personal ethics, of course, is fine to have, maybe necessary, there's no such thing as a university course that will fix the human temptation to fudge the corners or to, to get ahead in various unethical ways. And I think the far more interesting challenge is this one to unearth the implicit value frameworks that guide our way implicitly or explicitly through moral complexity. So that's why I focus attention in the book or we do in the book on professional ethics or professional norms, as well as then social or political ethics. And to get at your question exactly, again, to sort of reduce it to a formula, you're right to point out the similarities between economists and engineers in this respect. And I'll even add a kind of a simplistic way of expressing it. There's lots of social science that shows that the ideology, political ideology of founders is libertarian, techno-libertarian, you could say have a minimal amount of public policy and regulation so as to allow the flourishing of an entrepreneurial mindset that allows these technical skills to deliver great benefits to humanity. And then when you couple that with the optimization mindset of the engineer, the people who are employed in the company building the products, you're optimizing, as it were, for libertarianism, which is to say a kind of minimization of policy and government on steroids. And that's, I think, when tech companies have assumed the power that they have and the social harms or negative externalities of big tech are so obvious, that optimizing for libertarianism turns out to be a social problem. So to get to the heart of your question then, what is the optimization mindset? What's going on there? As you well know, economists in the 20th century grappled forthrightly with the interpersonal comparisons of utility. How is it that we can quantitatively measure your utility schedule and my utility schedule, and then get some social welfare function up and running. And then, you know, there's their famous impossibility theorems like Arrow's impossibility theorem that show the trouble or the problems that arise when thinking about a certain type of utility aggregation at a social level. Whereas I don't think computer scientists have done the parallel work or comparable work for their field. There are technical domains at which this optimization mindset is very productively directed. But as anyone who's lived in Silicon Valley knows, the optimization mindset within a technical field, how do you solve the traveling salesperson problem optimally? Great problem. Optimization mindset really productively aimed at it. But then optimization becomes something about how do we optimize our sleep? How do we optimize our nutrition? How do we optimize our society? And there, the optimization mindset can, has to confront those age-old problems that economists confronted. How do we know that all values are all things are A, measurable, are comparable. What about incommensurability? And there, I just don't think computer science, at least so far as I've understood it so far, has in the same way economists have confronted these deeper problems about value, essentially. And so this optimization mindset leads into some really powerful dead ends pretty quickly. Yeah, I think economists are actually quite good at um, articulating trade-offs. And 
diagnosing situations where individuals or organizations are neglecting them and they pursuing what we might think of as a sub goal. That's right. And, and then they discover ex post, oh, wow, this didn't turn out so well because we were ignoring right, these things. So one example that you use in the book is speed bumps or traffic circles. And if you articulate the goal as, hey, let's get people from point A to point B as quickly as possible, it turns out that by having traffic circles, not only do you reduce accidents and so forth, but you might actually increase the speed with which people get from point A to point B. So there's, on the one hand, some people are neglecting the other goals besides speed, but they're also perhaps neglecting counterintuitive ways that you can get speed through the reduction in speed, right? So I think economists, at least ones that have gotten a little bit deeper in the profession, understand that what you call Goodhart's law, which is that if you prioritize, some of our colleagues at Stanford just won the Nobel Prize a few years ago for pointing out organizational dysfunctions based on narrowly defined goals. But I think what you're saying is that in Silicon Valley, we see this all the time where venture capitalists will say, user growth, just pursue that to the exclusion of all other goals or our time on platform or these other OKRs. And yet that seems to neglect decades of lessons from experience. Yeah, I'd agree. I can try to pinpoint three different problems with optimization, and you've just given two of them. So first problem is that optimization is just a means and people who are obsessed with optimizing should pay comparable attention to the independent worthiness of the goal or the problem. Too frequently, the person gets hired into a company or thinks about a computationally tractable problem. Let's bring the optimization tools to bear. It hasn't really devoted a similar amount of attention to whether it's a worthy goal to try to solve optimally in the first place. Okay, that's the easy one to identify. Second one is a version of Goodhart's law that's the toxic or problematic outcome, which is that in computer science, you need a computationally tractable measure in order to try to algorithmically model something in order to solve the problem. And as is familiar from economists' longstanding work, not everything that's valuable in the world is reducible to a computationally tractable measure. So you go searching for proxies. And when the proxies become the thing that you obsess over, that your performance pay depends upon, then the proxy becomes the end rather than the goal itself. And we can end up a great distance from the thing we said at the beginning we cared about. And instead, we're optimizing for the proxy, which is a great distance. Finally, there's a version of what we call in the book a success disaster, which is that you find a worthwhile proxy, you successfully optimize for it. In other words, you solve the problem, but the particular thing you've optimized for in the world is something for which there are multiple values or multiple meanings and successfully optimizing for it throws out of social balance, the wider array of things we care about. So as an example, take end-to-end -end encryption on the messaging platforms we all use. That's a, a rather a, astonishing technical achievement to create an end-to-end -end encrypted platform for communication in which neither the company nor an outside agent like a government can inspect the content of the messages. And yet in our messaging systems and information exchange, we don't only care about privacy. We've optimized 100% for privacy in those systems. There's also personal safety or national security. Terrorists can use the same platforms. Child pornographers can use the same platforms. So we get into a series of fairly conventional social problems where there are multiple values at stake. Just as you said before, economists are familiar with this. The typical economist move is to say, well, we identify as much as we can and then allow politics to do its work to sort out how social preferences work. But of course, in building a platform, the current model is you don't, you don't defer to social preferences. You don't defer to policy. In fact, that's the thing not to do. Build inside the company, solve the problem yourself. That's the typical orientation. So the success disaster is also a version of the problem with optimization because you can be single-minded about just one goal or one aim and forget that there are other aims that are socially worthy as well. I think you offered somewhere, I'm recalling like an impossibility theorem of sorts. And I think the way you articulated it was one that, that I hadn't actually heard before. I think you guys need to put it, put a name on it, but it was really about how you can't simultaneously maximize all these different objectives. And you mentioned a couple of them, right? I mean, you mentioned human flourishing and you mentioned efficiency That's and right. a couple others, privacy and respect and dignity. And, and I forget the exact formulation, but it was like an impossibility theorem. And you say figuring out the trade-offs is, is no easy thing. And we don't have a perfect mechanism for doing this. Now, democracy is probably the, we all say is probably the least bad 
way to do it. But when we say that, what do we mean by that? Because in the book, I think you're grappling with this idea that is democracy in opposition to, say, big tech or is democracy in many ways embracing it and endorsing it? Again, when the optimization mindset becomes a kind of life outlook rather than a particular methodological approach to a domain of technical problems, I think the engineer is led to believe that there's no particular reason to be attached to democratic decision-making as such because democracy is so suboptimal. We need a social system, a political system that optimizes and democracies are designed as a fair process for refereeing, contesting preferences and values among citizens while cohabiting together in the same social order. If you look to democracy for optimizing a social welfare function, as economists, I think, have long understood, you're going to find yourself frustrated, which is why you get that phrase, it's the least bad outcome. There are other forms of political organization which can temporarily deliver better outcomes. But then you have problems of leadership, transition and stability and all the usual things. If you actually paid attention to the history of politics, which, of course, is what many engineers haven't done at all. They're purposefully, as it were, I'll put it provocatively, indifferent or ignorant of history. Why else would you choose to try to empower 19 year olds who have no worldly experience and haven't studied history to be the visionary founders of all the startups? All that's a long winded way of saying. To an economist, it won't be any revelatory insight to say democratic politics are a way of grappling with an impossibility theorem of optimizing a social welfare function. That's the Arrow's classic insight. But there's no parallel kind of orientation understanding amongst computer scientists when they're doing effectively the same thing when they build a product or a platform in a company. That's where I think there's the inevitability of confronting these broader political questions, which is why the computer science curriculum needs to expand in order to confront the classic questions of public policy and social and professional ethics. Well, I'm going to jump ahead in the book and maybe I wasn't planning on it, but ask this, right? Haven't the new technologies, particularly social media, in many ways enhanced the democratic process by stimulating more discourse, stimulating more conversation, allowing people to organize into groups, allowing people to push out their messages and engage in, in political advertising, so to speak. I mean, it seems like, especially because it's so easy to access these channels relative to what you had to do before, which privileged those who had strong organizational capabilities and incumbent organizations, whether they be unions or industry groups. And now anybody can kind of, I mean, isn't this like a Habermasian yeah. paradise now with Facebook and Twitter and everything? The sentiment you just expressed, you can run a long way with it. Let me just expand on it a little bit, like a Habermasian digital public sphere in which the communicative capacities of each of us is now so greatly magnified because we can take to social media, find a wide audience. If we go viral, many more people see it. You very quickly come to some grief when you follow the thought all the way through. Habermas, of course, and the digital public sphere was meant to be a deliberative kind of space in which reasons were exchanged and people's preferences were just expressed, but also challenged. I don't know if the current design of social media especially facilitates reason giving and deliberation. In fact, I'd say it doesn't at all, but the basic spirit that our voices of all individuals absent a whole bunch of older gatekeepers, whether they're editors or journalists or, you know, the difficulty any ordinary person had in reaching a wider audience, social media has made that far easier. So the way we put it in the book is that there's a value trade-off to be confronted here. There are three, we call it a trilemma. There's three separate values. There's the value of freedom of expression. And if you took that value alone, you'd have to reach the conclusion you just did that with respect to freedom of expression, digital pub, social media has vastly expanded the agency and voice of the ordinary person. But it's not the only value that matters. There's another value of individual dignity, we call it, and individual dignity gives each person a reason to have their own personhood respected. And one of the consequences we know on social media of unencumbered freedom of expression is that hate speech proliferates and you can be flooded with messages online that effectively insult your dignity and might even drum you out off the platform because it's just so toxic for you to be there. 
So you have to balance dignity against freedom of expression. And the third value is what we just generically call democracy, which is hardly an insight here to say that a well-functioning democracy has to prioritize quality information over quantity of information, has to prioritize reason giving and deliberation. And there's a basic informational health that's required in the information ecosystem. And there's, again, just putting your thumb on the scale of freedom of expression doesn't yet express anything about quality versus quantity. And part of the whole actual regulatory infrastructure, Section 230, all kinds of ways in which you stretch across geographic boundaries, engagement is what the platforms typically are optimizing for. And although we're getting better within the companies at handling misinformation and disinformation for the early decades of social media, there was no attention paid to that at all. So you got this trilemma and we have to find a way to come to terms with how it is we're going to balance the relevant values. We don't want all of one value. That would be a mistake. And the provocative thing I guess I'd say is there's no uniquely correct answer about how to balance the values. There are better and worse ways of doing it for sure, but this is why in certain respects, the optimization mindset ultimately gets frustrated because what you're telling the engineer is there's no uniquely correct answer to this question. Social conditions change and we have to adapt over time. That's what makes democracy good is it's a constantly adaptable framework for updating our own regulatory structures to reflect citizen preferences and changing social conditions rather than just get the answer, get the model to do the right thing, and then you're done. I certainly echo the sentiments about us living in an era where without the gatekeepers, there's all sorts of opportunities for hateful speech and fake news and ignorance to flourish. But as an historian, I'm always very skeptical of my subjective impressions. And I always wonder, you know, ignorance is not a new thing. We had the Inquisition and we had the Salem witchcraft trials and we had uh, Jim Crow. We had a bunch of kind of ignorant things in our past. Do we actually have any evidence that people are becoming more ignorant or more prone to stupidity as a result of the echo chambers? Like, what's the evidence here? Yeah, I don't think human nature has changed. And you're exactly right. And so this is why, again, I think having a, an historical understanding is important to bring to bear here. So I'd point to two effects of social media that are not changing human nature, but are making the system of communications quite different. The first is in virtue of how easy it is to express yourself, we now live in a world where information or content is super abundant. And the value of freedom of expression was in part, I think, developed historically because circulating information was comparatively so difficult in earlier eras of communication technologies. You could go bark on the street corner and reach a limited number of people. You couldn't guarantee you had a newspaper platform, a radio platform, a TV. Like getting your message out was hard. Today, it's easy. That's why we need a search engine in order to foreground for us the relevant information rather than irrelevant information. That's why the core function of any social media platform is an algorithmic curation system to uprank information and downrank other information. So we get superabundance as the current background conditions in which we live. And then secondly, part of what social media has done is replaced what you know we call in the book vertical trust that any individual had to an expert because of course the fundamental condition of modern existence is that none of us can independently verify every bit of knowledge and information we go to a doctor we go to a car mechanic we do all kinds of things all the time where we outsource to someone else the expertise to help solve our problem and in a world of social media the people who are signaling to us what counts as quality information are our peers, our, our friends on the social graph, rather than some gatekeeper expert. And so we have what we call in the book now horizontal trust rather than vertical trust to an expert. And that has led to the spread of misinformation and disinformation that no expert has, as, as it were, weighed in on and tried to filter for us. So again, human nature hasn't changed, but in a world of superabundance and horizontal trust, People are just exposed to and put into filter bubbles or echo chambers of people who circulate low quality information. And when that's all that you see and are exposed to, or at least predominantly what you're exposed to, people reach a different set of judgments and conclusions about the world because that's what human nature is, to engage with our peers about what social knowledge is. Couldn't you argue that that's it's actually more democratic 
than the system that it's replacing, where the experts are somewhat, they're just one more vote, right? An expert gets the same vote as the non-expert at the end of the day. We don't allow, you have a PhD, you don't get three votes for senator. You get the same vote as the uneducated person. That seems more democratic. And some people would argue that when people were concerned that Trump meant the end of democracy, I mean, you could argue that it was actually the revival of democracy, right? Because the elites had to take a back seat to the, the masses, so to speak. Right. I agree entirely with the how that thought follows from a kind of basic understanding or thought about democracy. My own training as a democratic theorist, political philosopher, the short answer is no, absolutely not. It is not necessarily more democratic to replace a set of experts with just the judgment of the crowd or everyone gets the same vote on whether or not something is good or bad. You ultimately want a democratic society which is responsive to one vote, one person for citizens. But it is a long-standing piece of democratic theory and practice to try to counterbalance the expression of preferences by every citizen with expertise and knowledge that is only held by a limited number, given the way that science and technology have developed over the course of the past couple hundred years. To put it differently, you sometimes hear people in bioengineering or computer engineering say things like, oh my gosh, the age of AI, the age of CRISPR is so empowering because it's democratizing science, it's democratizing technology. And I like to remind people that if the nuclear physicists had said this back in the age of nuclear energy, let's democratize access to plutonium because everyone should be able to experiment with nuclear energy. Wouldn't that be a great democratization of science? And of course the answer is no. We were really lucky, so to speak, that access to uranium and plutonium is pretty difficult to come by, whereas a CRISPR gene editing kit or AI is not that difficult. So brute democratization isn't necessarily a good thing. What you want is a kind of fine balance between expert knowledge and democratic systems, which in some ultimate way are responsive to citizen preferences. But throwing every social problem up to everyone's own brute preferences is no no worthy solution and age old examinations of democracy have pointed that out forever. Um, that's go back and read Plato and Aristotle. You'll find the same kind of problem identified. Yeah. And, and although some people might argue that these gatekeepers, such as remember the old three, you might be old enough yes. to remember when there were just three TV that's, networks. That's right. Yes, yeah, exactly. ABC, CBS, NBC, and you got the three guys in the anchor chair. And then every city had kind of a monopoly newspaper. That's right. Um, we had two, but they were owned by the same company in Philadelphia. And then now it's like, oh, we've got any, anybody can basically be a publisher, but they're all using just a few platforms. And so in that sense, we actually have more market concentration. Exactly right. But the, the holders of that potential market power, they're not really using it as curators as aggressively. That's right. But they're beginning to. When people talk about, Facebook and Twitter and Google as having too much power, I think part of the argument is that they're not using it the way they should be using it. Like we want them to exercise the power more, but that creates its own problems. So do we need to start thinking about these as regulated utilities or as extensions of the state? That's not the direction I would go. I want, here I'm speaking for myself rather than for my colleagues in the book, the idea of gatekeepers shouldn't be seen to be at odds with democracy. In certain respects, gatekeepers are a welcome place to help filter quality from low quality information or ideas. Or let's be concrete about this in the world we actually live in. Many people point to, just as you said, the algorithmic ad-driven business model as the core of the problem. And I think by contrast that there's something important to be said about the mere fact of user-generated content that goes through no filter as the core problem. So I like to think of what you could call the Netflix counterfactual or the WhatsApp counterfactual. Netflix uses all the same algorithms, collects all the same data, but people typically don't talk about Netflix as having a misinformation, disinformation problem that's undermining democracy because to get something up on Netflix, it has to be greenlit by someone who's a producer. And you or I just can't upload something to Netflix and off it goes and finds an audience. So there's some curatorial function on the production end. Now, unlike that at Netflix, at WhatsApp, there's just user-generated content and no algorithm. And what do we find on WhatsApp? An important vector for misinformation, disinformation, and all the rest. 
part of what I think is going on is that the sheer volume of user-generated content in the absence of any filter at all to try to foreground quality from low-quality information is part of what we have to confront as a problem. It's not just the algorithm. It's not just the platform. And who bears the responsibility for the lack of editorial function? That's the company's problem. And that's where I think they need to step in. And so another question might be, why is there not consumer demand for more curation and more filtration? Is that just a fundamental human weakness? We're incapable of exercising self-control or understanding our higher level preferences and what it takes to flourish. Are we all going to, we know that Soylent is bad for us, but we're going to buy it anyway, right? I think in certain respects, that's an interesting and, you know, maybe the like $64 million question. I have a couple hypotheses, but I don't have any deeply held view on this. So one I'd say is that part of what's exciting, excitable about social media is the idea that we can connect with like-minded people and Human nature does tend to prefer that which is more like us rather than alien from us. And so the stuff that's closer to us is more engaging. Another hypothesis would be the large companies, now that they've concentrated power, have basically given to us a kind of regime of thinking about the product as a function of a consumer preference. Like you can click yes or no on the terms of service. And if you, after you've clicked yes, and if you no longer like it, you can delete Facebook or delete Uber if you don't like what's going on. We're very rarely invited to think of this as a social problem. And, you know, one of the analogies we give in the book would be to invite, you know, anyone to imagine it back when the automobile was being developed and we needed a kind of basic infrastructure for roadways. We used to, before there were highway systems there, we were using the old kinds of dirt roads that chiefly were used by horses and carriages. And imagine if what the auto manufacturers had told every person who was a prospective buyer of a car, we don't think the government should create any infrastructure or regulations, no rules of the road. Here's this product. You should use it if you want to. Be safe if you use it. And if you don't want to use it, then just don't buy a car. Of course, it's a better thing to put in literal and figurative guardrails that help coordinate the behavior of people to make the whole system safer for everyone. But that gets us out of a consumer mentality and puts us into a social problem-solving mode. And I think that's the moment we're at with social media. We shouldn't default to thinking our only choices are to delete Facebook or Uber or whatever. We need a, a social problem-solving function that installs the guardrails for the healthy use of social media. And the First Amendment and Section 230 and other things have basically been roadblocks at the moment to try to grapple with that in a meaningful way. You know, when I think about exit versus voice, right, one of the reasons why voice works is because exit is curtailed. And there are a lot of people who are arguing that what we need is a new type of antitrust that would help stimulate more competition between newcomers and these incumbents. But it seems to me that that would actually exacerbate the problem to some degree, right? Having a monopoly in many ways is convenient if we're trying to impose standards. If we had a monopoly manufacturer of cars, then they could put in airbags or whatever, not worry that someone's going to undercut them on price without airbags. Does having this all this market power actually, do we have reason for optimism? Because Facebook could presumably create standards and actually effectively implement them. And only the real extreme dissatisfied people would go off and join these fringe groups with their fringe communities, right? Exactly. Yeah, uh, you're not going to see some of that when yes. Facebook took down- The Gap or Parler. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think you have to appreciate what kinds of problems antitrust is good for and what kinds of problems antitrust is not good for. Just as you said, these problems of misinformation and disinformation require enormous resources, human and otherwise, to try to grapple with the volume of content. And then there's, of course, the network effects of a built-in tendency for a monopolistic or quasi-monopolistic sorting of the marketplace. I don't think, just as your intuition, I think, uh, was expressed there, that breaking up Google's search function or breaking up Facebook into 20 Facebooks would be a meaningful way of confronting the problem of mis misinformation and disinformation. But by contrast, there are other kinds of problems that antitrust is good for. So I have in mind here a much greater kind of skepticism or scrutiny of mergers and acquisitions. Let Facebook be large. There are some network effects that come along and the resources they can throw at these problems might redound to the benefit of all of us. But the early access they get to understanding the emergence of small competitors, Instagram, WhatsApp, of course, the classic examples, 
there should be greater opportunity in the marketplace for competitors actually to emerge. And I'd point to, you know, a kind of expectation within Silicon Valley's own finance system, the venture capital system, that in a completely acceptable exit is acquisition as opposed to going public. And the indifference between acquisition and, and public offering, which allows the company actually then potentially to grow to huge scale, is also, I think, part of the background problem. So antitrust is good for, as happened with Microsoft, the company didn't get broken up, but there was greater scrutiny of the purchasing of new companies, new competitors by Microsoft. And that's hopefully, in my view, the outcome that will happen this time. Well, one of the things that I think could be problematic in trust is that when an entity is acting like a, a monopoly and then becomes almost a SRO or self-regulatory organization, then all of a sudden things like due process kick in. And if that's the case, then it's going to make it even more difficult for a Facebook, say, to delete accounts or to delete content because the frictions associated with that, the cost associated with giving every action that kind of scrutiny, it's, it's just going to be, I think, an impossible burden for them to meet. So how do we kind of delegate this regulation to these entities without subsequently requiring them to engage in, in kind of due process? That's why, for example, the, the very thing you point to is why I think Facebook's experiment with this independent oversight board is a worthwhile experiment. It's too early to say whether it's working well or badly, but Removing some decision-making to an external but non-governmental entity outside the company is a small step toward a kind of independent set of standard-making that it will be more responsive in principle to the public or the composition of this oversight board as a lot of human rights activists from around the world. They're not harnessed to a profit-maximizing incentive. So I think more experiments like this would be good. And again, we can look to the history of different regulatory eras for other analogs for this. The easiest example is the ratings we have for movies. And when we go to the movie theater, the PGR rating system is a industry self-regulation approach, not enforced by law and helped to provide a better path for consumers and shaped the incentive structures, of course, of movie making for a long time. The current fragmentation of the TV era of streaming services has made this quite different, but that was a multi-decade long arrangement that was quite productive, most people think. We've seen Facebook call for regulation, and I think a cynic might say, well, yeah, it's the disruptors that are the libertarians, and then once you become an incumbent, that's when you lock the gate behind you, and they'd look at history and say that Regulation has, to a large extent, benefited the incumbents and made it more difficult for others to enter. How would you respond to that kind of cynical view of... Yeah, um, I don't think it's cynical. I think there's good social science evidence to demonstrate exactly that, what you said. So the early evidence to date, as I understand it, for the effects of GDPR, the European Union's privacy regulation, is that it has privilege the role of the large incumbents who have the resources to comply with whatever it is 26, 27 different member states in the European Union and their different privacy regimes. And a startup just doesn't have the capacity to, to develop standards in that way. So you need a different type of regulatory approach. And I think actually here in California, there's an, a good example of one. The, the California Consumer Privacy Act put into place just a few years ago has a threshold that after a certain amount of revenue, then these privacy regulations are binding, but below that, you don't have that regulatory approach. So you allow for some competition to emerge unencumbered by a regulatory compliance, and only after you generate a certain amount of revenue does the compliance function kick in. And I'm sure there are other ways of imagining more flexible and adaptive regulatory systems that we could learn from history from. I don't think they've been tested very frequently in tech. One of the chapters is on the future of work, and I found this to be a great chapter. And you begin the chapter, you mentioned Taylorism yeah. back in the early 20th century, and, and you say, look, Taylorism, the managers loved Taylorism, but the workers, they never mistook Taylorism for anything other than oppression. But I think today's workers have a, oftentimes a very different view. And I thought what happened with Proposition 22 here in California was fascinating because a lot of people created this binary where... It was the companies versus their employees, you know, the companies versus democracy. And then when it was put to a vote, not only did most people in California want to overturn the legal protections for the drivers, but 
probably most of the drivers opposed the rules. In part, Uber did a lot to encourage their drivers to get out and vote in that direction. But it makes the kind of easy dichotomy between kind of what we think of as democratic and what we think of as pro-corporate. Yeah, that's all fair. And I just add some additional context to it. But I agree entirely that it's more complicated than the conventional binary might allow. So the, the more context following, first of all, the conventional thing to say, which still seems to me worth saying out loud is you've got these platform or, you know, gig platforms, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, in which a small number of people or actually the people employed by the companies, not the contract workers are getting all of the outsized rewards that go along with being at a tech startup or a big platform. And then you don't have any of the conventional job protections, you know, social support functions. That's all outsourced to the state, which is to say to the rest of us to provide in terms of social welfare supports. So there's a much greater precarity or the risk is shifted from the employees to the contract workers who themselves are already amongst the more vulnerable in the population. Okay. Now the proposition comes along and just as you said, it overturned the law and we returned to the arrangement that allowed for the contract workers. I'm interested in people who want to explore Every single time any of us in California opened an Uber or Lyft app, we got pushed to us what is effectively a political advertisement telling us what the right way, preferred way to vote on it was. And the same, too, was true for the contract workers, the, the drivers. They're, I'd say this is the early salvo in what's likely to be a decade-long kind of social debate with lots of experimentation across different states. And this initial outcome here in California provides an important early input. But at the end of the day, the precariousness of the contract gig worker in the broader economy still means that the rest of us as citizens have to pick up the social safety net costs for those people, while at the same time that the full-time employees in the company are making outsized rewards. They go back to 2008 financial crisis type of line. We privatized the gains for a small number of people in industry and socialized the losses for the contract workers, which is not a great recipe in a long run arrangement. Yeah, we have a long history of endorsing through democracy policies which benefit a subset of the population at the expense of a much larger group. But that doesn't that seem to be a necessary evil uh, as part of democracy? I mean, one of the things that I was thinking when I was reading through the discussion about, say, Google's refusal to enter into a contract with the Department of Defense because the employees of Google, and also to some extent a lot of the shareholders of Google who are pushing kind of ESG policies, did not support this. Now, I think you can make a fairly strong case ethically as to why this might be a good policy, but can you also make the argument that it's democratic as well? I mean, isn't the U.S. military kind of controlled democratically by the voters? And isn't this a profoundly anti-democratic thing to do, to say, no, no, we're not going to do the will of the our elected representatives? Yeah, let's just add to that thought. These companies, Google, Facebook, whatever the company is, they're incorporated, not in cyberspace, they're incorporated in an actual jurisdiction, the territory of the United States. They're protected by the infrastructure of the rule of law in the U.S. And Presumably, the preferences of most of the employees and, and leaders would be for democratic political arrangements rather than non-democratic political arrangements. So I'm strongly sympathetic to the idea that the claim that companies owe nothing to the country in which they're incorporated and operate, it is false. Now, I guess, again, I see the maven protests by the Google employees who I'll characterize it here perhaps roughly accurately, which is they were devoting themselves to developing facial recognition technologies or tools, were surprised to learn that their superiors had made contracts with the U.S. military, meaning that their own labor could have been put to use for killing in war rather than the more benign uses they imagined that they were working for. Okay, this is a time-honored way of having a conversation about what the good and bad uses of technology happened to be. And the fact that tech workers felt empowered enough to raise a stink, I thought was an example of democratic politicking and deliberation now happening within a company and bringing this to the attention of the wider society. So in that respect, I'm all for it. Well, I wonder if we could switch gears in the time we have left, because you also wrote this book called Just Giving. And I, I think most people don't realize the full extent of nonprofits in the U.S. Yes. and the true power that 
philanthropies have. And what most people don't realize is that whenever a philanthropy or a nonprofit spends a dollar, 50 cents of it is coming from the taxpayers. That's right. Just because it's off budget, anytime you, you give someone a tax write-off, it's essentially, it's equivalent, functional equivalent to an expenditure by the government. So the government is essentially spending you know, hundreds of billions of dollars every year, but it's spending it on things that were never decided upon by the legislature or by the bicameral process and by the president. It's just essentially privatizing all these services. Right. And without any accountability on top of it, because we can unelect the people who spend the taxpayer dollars of the next election, you can't unelect the head of the foundation. So is, and it seems to, and it's kind of like a one-way ratchet, right? Because once things enter into the, the nonprofit sector, they don't, I mean, they are required to draw it down according to a certain schedule, but oftentimes the returns are higher than the drawdown schedule. So these things are, are kind of perpetual in many ways. So why is this something that more people should be worried about? And how could we inject a little more kind of democratic accountability to these institutions? Yeah, so thanks for the question, because it gives me a chance to connect the book on philanthropy with the system error book. Effectively, I think to make the connection very direct, big philanthropy, the, the philanthropic activity of millionaires and billionaires, is a certain type of technocratic input into what would otherwise be democratic decision making. And it has the further feature of the philanthropic activity that you just described, namely that it's massively tax subsidized by all of us. So rather than collecting billions of dollars in revenue in the treasury and then having it dispersed by our elected representatives, we forego a lot of revenue in the treasury and tell Bill Gates or Elon Musk or whomever, you decide how to spend what is effectively a, a lot of public money and some of your money. And that gives disproportionate power in the funding of nonprofits and other social projects to a small number of people who have ideas that are not accountable to the rest of us. To put it in a kind of comic, but I think accurate way, Bill Gates has a, a set of views about education policy. There's a, an article I read one time that said he was working out on a treadmill and watched a documentary about some history or social studies curriculum in Australia and decided it sounded really good and he wanted to give it a try in the United States. So he directed the foundation to spend a bunch of money to experiment with it. And as it happens, when I'm working out on a treadmill, sometimes I have ideas about how to reform American education. It's just that I don't have the power to go tell a bunch of people to experiment with it. So that's the sense in which I mean billionaires have a different kind of power than we do. And these technocratic inputs into what basically are our lives, all of us, whether we are aware of it or not, I think are touched in ways by nonprofits all the time. Any of us who work at a private university, these are typically nonprofit organizations museums, cultural institutions, many hospitals, uh, so many aspects of the provision of basic services, cultural, social, and otherwise are done through the nonprofit sector. And those institutions, nonprofit institutions depend to a very large extent on the funding preferences of, of wealthy people. So how to democratize or at least bring some greater awareness to this incredibly important feature of our social life and economy in my view, the starting point is basically to get journalists and citizens aware of this basic function and to direct scrutiny rather than simple praise to billionaires or millionaires for their philanthropic work. So just as if you run for office, every investigative journalist is trying to discover something unseemly or problematic about you and your activity, or you run it working at a big company, you have the business pages and business journalists. We only, in the past year or two, are beginning to have people whose beats is to cover the biggest philanthropists among us. And I think that's long overdue. And then we can begin to bring some social pressure to bear. Then I think we need to change some of the laws. So we need to fundamentally restructure the way tax incentives for philanthropy work. I think we should get rid of perpetuity as the default legal arrangement for the existence of foundations, because that gives the dead power over the living the dead hand of the donor, as the tax lawyers say, reaches out of the grave to strangle the preferences of all living people because we can't undo the mission that was given to the foundation by someone who's been dead for a decade or a hundred years. And by the way, since you're any philanthropist these days talks about being effective, I don't know what line of thought could possibly lead anyone to believe that they are so possessed of wisdom that even a hundred or 200 years from now, their current preferences will optimally solve social problems or confront social issues in a social setting that they can't even yet imagine. So 
on efficiency grounds, allowing perpetuity seems to me a kind of crazy arrangement. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of people, when they talk about general incorporation, when it came about where the government's just said, you can start a company and you don't need a specific charter that tells you you're going to build dams or you're going to do this or that, right? You can do whatever you want. But the reason why we're not super concerned about that is because on the one hand, we've got all these labor laws and competition laws and so forth, but we also know that they're going to be subject to the profit constraint, which means that if they start doing something that's of value to somebody, they're going to go yeah, out of business. They have to meet consumer demand. They, you know, if, if you don't sell anything, you go out of business. Whereas the foundation doesn't need to sell anything. They're giving stuff away and people want it. So that's all deferential. And it's why so there's no inner logic of competition. The Gates Foundation can't put the Ford Foundation out of business. That type of marketplace competition does not exist in the world of philanthropy. And so with the nonprofits, look, the government's poning up 50% of the share price, so to speak, but they don't have any voice. Now, I think it's certainly the case that people who run foundations are subject to peer pressure. And that's why we sometimes see mission drift. So rather than the founder's vision being implemented, we often find that it's there's this relatively homogeneous community of yeah. nonprofit folks. So there's lots of peer pressure, but the peer pressure doesn't seem to be from the general public, but rather this group of elite folks that have a, an elite vision, right? Right. That's exactly it. This is how it's similar to the world of technology. It's a small group of generally like-minded elites or either technocratic elites or philanthropic elites. One of the ideas I only briefly explore in the book on philanthropy, but here I'll, I'll air it out for you. Tell me what you think of this, Greg. I sometimes start a talk I'll give about philanthropy when I have a bunch of millionaires or billionaires, which is not that frequently in the audience, to say, I'm going to criticize a whole bunch of things about the practice of philanthropy, but I want to begin by telling you that I am the beneficiary of this weird institutional feature of my life that makes me completely unaccountable. I have tenure. And most people think that tenure is like a ridiculous institutional design, a recipe for laziness, lack of productivity, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe that's true. But what I then point out is that at least within the realm of high performing research universities, the social norms that attach to my work as a scholar involve, I can't just publish anything I want. It goes through peer review. When I show up at the workshop to present a draft paper, I get criticism from you and my colleagues because that's the way we do business. When the philanthropist shows up, they get their butts kissed because it's a deferential, glad handing, polite mode of interaction. So I think the norms of peer review and critique that exist within the unaccountable world of tenured professors would be healthy to introduce into the world of philanthropy instead of thinking, why aren't you grateful to me for the decision I made to give some money away. I don't show up at a workshop or I don't show up to the podcast and say, Greg, I spent all this time writing this book. Why aren't you thanking me for giving it a crack? The whole point of the conversation is to explore the interesting and problematic aspects. That doesn't seem to be the orientation we have about philanthropy. It seems then that we could, uh, there's, a, there's a need for maybe professional ethics in the world of philanthropy. So to tie the two books together, should we be thinking about a curriculum or, and I know a lot of organizations, IEEE and a couple others have thought about, okay, it's not a binding thing, but maybe some kind of certification or education or some kind of something that demonstrates that you've thought seriously about responsibilities and maybe some kind of non-binding sanction if you do something which is sort of outside the pale. Certainly, even if there was no licensing regime, big companies like Google could simply say, hey, if you want to be an engineer here, we need you to be a member of this organization. Could we do something like that? Yes. And in certain respects, this is where my efforts with my colleagues, um, the author, co-authors of the book, are now directed. We're trying to help build a, a more institutionally rooted set of professional norms and ethics. That would include, for example, you know, I sometimes make a gesture towards the biomedical research and you know, drug development, this type of thing. So when Jennifer Doudna, the co-discoverer of CRISPR, realizes the profound implications of this powerful gene editing technique, she organizes a set of professional meetings, not passing laws, but professional norms to say, there's a moratorium on using this on humans. And so when the Chinese biomedical scientist uses it on humans, he's immediately ostracized from the practice of professional science. He's disinvited from every professional gathering. No journal will publish his articles et cetera, et cetera. 
I invite my AI science colleagues to, can you identify for me anyone in the world of AI science who has done something outside the norms of what's professionally respectable and has suffered as a consequence of it? That doesn't include breaking laws. And I don't have an example yet. So that's exactly where I think the world of professional computer science and norms, IEEE and other places needs to go. And Stanford, partly in virtue of its own consequential role in the whole ecosystem, I hope can make some meaningful contributions there. And presumably we could do it in such a way that it doesn't shut down debate and doesn't foreclose in innovation and it doesn't become this uh, self-referential, enclosed, intolerant group of folks with elite norms only, right? Exactly. Exactly. Rob, thank you so much for joining me. This is really a provocative book, System Error. It covers far more than we had a chance to talk about, and maybe we can continue the conversation later sometime outside of the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.